Welcome to Lawyers on the Block, a crypto law podcast from Roman Kubiak and myself, Kieran Forsyth, in the private wealth group here at Hugh James. Over the series, we'll be looking at some of the major issues and hot topics in the crypto and digital asset space right now. Trigger warning, we are lawyers, so we'll inevitably talk about some of the legal issues involved. But don't worry, we'll try to keep the legal jargon to a minimum. At their most basic, smart contracts are essentially coded agreements which don't require any human intervention or a middleman. So is that a good thing or not? Are such contracts actually legally binding? Well, stick with us as Kieran and I discuss what they are, how they can be used, how they're being used now, the pros and cons, and what the future looks like. So, Kieran, hello again. Hi, Roman. How are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you, sir? Yeah, very well, thank you. What's what's new? What's going on? Well, I just booked a little, little getaway today. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's quite exciting. I've uh, booked a, a, a little trip in December to, to Iceland, to Reykjavik. Oh, amazing. It's been on the bucket list for quite a while to uh, see the Northern Lights. In case anyone thought I just had a massive love for frozen food and booking a trip to... <laughs> frozen fish. Yeah, frozen fish. So, yeah, so I'm off, off there. And... Quite oddly, in fact, I think whether inadvertently, I don't know if I found one of the potential flaws of smart contracts. We'll, you know, we'll talk about what they are in a moment, but put into context. So I went onto a website to book my transfer from the airport you find to Keflavik Airport, yeah. which is crucial to this story. Back over to Reykjavik and, and back and it came to, it was 15,900 and something, 15,990, I think it was, Icelandic kroner. Yeah. Now that is about £100 sterling. So it sounds very scary, but it's, it's about £100. Okay. So, you know, transfer there and back to people, great. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this in the past few months, you buy something online, it says, right, you've got 10 minutes now to authorise it through your mobile app. If your phone is off or you've misplaced it, you've got 10 minutes of a month to scramble to find it. Yeah. Thankfully, it was in my pocket, pulled the phone out, went to approve the payment, and said, uh, £15,998. <laughs> Hang on, I'll hold the phone, quite literally. <laughs> so um, I thought, well, if I authorise this, am I authorising £15,998, because that's what it says on the screen, or does it actually mean 15998 Icelandic kroner? So mm, sure. I called TSB, they said, well, we don't really know. Um, I've emailed the Icelandic transfer company and they're saying, well, because you haven't actually booked it, because you let it hang in authorised payment, we're not sure. So I'm kind of stuck in this limbo world where I've effectively potentially sought to invoke a smart contract between myself and this company. Yeah. On the one hand, they're going to, you know, my offer is by 15998 Icelandic kroner. Or no, their offer is they will transfer me from Keflavik to Reykjavik. For the price of $15.98, I signed the Kroner, but it's got stuck. So I need that human intervention. I guess if I could just pay someone the cash, it would work, but I can't. Now, there's an error potential in the coding somewhere mm-hmm. because whichever way you look at it, something's gone wrong. Yeah. How do we resolve that? So, you know, it's, I'm sure I will resolve it. I'm not going to be walking from with all my layers on but anyway it's a, it's a first world problem but I guess it quite neatly demonstrates potentially some of the issues we're facing or could be facing with 
what we're calling smart contracts. So, I mean, Kieran, do you want to give us an idea of what we mean when we talk about smart contracts? And I guess from that then, specifically, what us exciting lawyers are going to be calling smart legal contracts. Yeah. Well, smart contracts, they've, they've been around, you know, you, you would have heard of them in the press, people talking about them. There's an increasing adoption of them in certain industries. And they very much are heralded as the new way or certainly, you know, in the next few years an, an ongoing way of doing business, you know, whether that is by manner of a very simple agreement, which is, you know, X happens, then Y happens, or whether it's going to be something more complex, which is the what we're going to get into, which is the smart legal contract. But essentially, a, a, a smart contract is a, a, a coded agreement. And when, when we say coded agreement is that it's computer code. And it's, it's registered uh, on a blockchain, which has you know significant advantages, some say disadvantages, but I think on the whole, there's significant advantages over that. And to explain them in a very simplified way, the obligations in a smart contract follows the classic Boolean logic that underpins all digital computing. So that takes me back to my computer programming days in my A-levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the haunting days. <laughs> so essentially, if, if A happens, then B happens. That if then structure is never called the Boolean exactly. algorithm, is it? Or yeah, is that how you said Boolean? I mean, I must say, I it's, Boolean, this yeah. has been a while since, yeah. I, since I heard of it. So, really, I mean, are they actually that groundbreaking when things like standing orders, direct debits, etc., which we're all accustomed to, are very common example, real world examples of smart contracts? Is that implicit arrangement? We're doing this and we're expecting something in return, and it's yeah. been facilitated purely by computer code, isn't it? Exactly. But, you know, the, the key feature of perhaps the real-world examples that we're all used to is that they're not typically on a blockchain. And, and that's an interesting thing. And I, I, I don't know if any of the listeners are, are aware of, or I'm sure they are, but yeah. have actually come across you know, the, the practical advantages of blockchain. But I mean, if not, it'd be worth exploring. It's essentially, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a database. It, in its simplest form, it's a way of storing a large amount of information and data. But crucially, it's... People have heard of mining, and what you do is you mine, so you process these transactions through very complex computer equations, and the first one that does that validates that transaction. That then gets added to the ledger, to the blockchain, and it's then there forever, really. Isn't it? it can't be changed, can't be altered. It's What do they call it? Is it immutable? In- immutable, yeah. The difference, I guess, between a blockchain and other forms of ledger, I mean, there's... There are a number of key features, aren't there? Yeah, they absolutely are. I think it's the, the security of it. You know, it's, it's cryptographic. It's self-validating, which is really, really interesting. So it's trustless, which is a very interesting concept because one party is not relying on the trust or you're not trusting the other party. So the, the argument goes that if, I suppose what, what you're saying is that the blockchain is, is a, a way of showing that something has happened and when that something happens, which does not require human involvement to make it happen, then the next step happens. So you can imagine things like in construction, for instance, a shipment has arrived of whatever, then payment goes out of X amount because the shipment has come in. So the yeah. blockchain is what registers all of that. Without someone standing there to verify it's happened or, and I guess in a banking sense, that'd be like clearing. Exactly right. Yeah. 
but I think the the real benefits is that it's immutable. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's unchanging. It's it's self validating. It's a record, a permanent record of what's occurred. Yeah, and and it's it's distributed ledger technology, and and they say that distributed ledger technology or DLT for short will be increasingly used to host smart legal contracts, and it's this issue that may pose a problem to the traditional concepts of what we know as English contract law mainly because a smart contract is effectively self-enforcing, which is interesting. You know, the, the principle that X has happened, then Y happens. So you, you mentioned obviously the principles of English contract law. So let's go back to contract law 101. Obviously, we, we deal with this on a daily basis, but for those who maybe have lives outside of law, <laughs> those lucky people, what do we mean by English contract law? What, what does a contract look like in law of England and Wales? Yeah, well, English contract law is antiquated. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's antiquated for a reason because it... It stood it, the test of time, Kieran. It, it stood the test of time. Absolutely. Well, it, it works. Yeah. Now, what you need for a valid contract in, in English law, or English and Welsh law, we should say, yeah. is you need consideration. So that's essentially... The money paying for a good is no service. Well, the, is that payment? It's the consideration for the contract. Yeah, yeah. It, we, it, something's happened. It paid something, for example, and that then is one of the very basic features of, of English contract law. I guess the process. Well, you've got the, an offer or an invitation to treat. There's those terms. Isn't there? Yes. So an offer of a good or a service. Yeah. So I say to you, you know, I will give you a coffee. If you clean my house, clean my house. There you go. So <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take that deal, yeah. and then you accept that. So there's, I've got the offer. You've accepted that, and we've then intended to create a legal relationship. Yeah, and intention is very important. For, yeah, for a contract to occur because you have to intend to contract with me. I have to intend to contract with you, otherwise, which is very subjective, isn't it? But it's yeah. interesting because then on interpretation at the moment, the way the law is, the courts. Is any dispute they'll they'll construe or interpret contracts very objectively, won't they? Which is quite interesting. But we'll get ahead of ourselves a bit. But then you then clean my house. I then buy you a, a coffee. So you know, you've got the offer, you've got the acceptance, you've got the con- consideration. We fulfilled the contract, haven't we? We've got a binding agreements being fulfilled. Almost because there's three out of the four main elements. Yeah. As you know, and I'm, I know you've, you've led me up on, on onto that argument there. But what you also need is certainty. Yeah. And in, in our very simple transaction right there, that is very certain. A coffee for cleaning, but that doesn't equate to very very complex financial transactions or deals. You can imagine things like insurance, you know, those, those kind of things. So there's there's lots of things there that, that that need to be considered. But certainty is is one under smart contracts. But even then, I mean, not to labour this point too much, but what sort of coffee? What size? Yeah. You know, it's uh, when you say clean the house, are you cleaning the outside? Are you cleaning the inside? And there's, I mean, us lawyers love picking apart, picking flaws and things, but there's so much scope for ambiguity potentially. And I think that's probably what's been a concern about smart contracts, about removing that human intervention, is how tight is the coding? Yeah. Do the parties understand the legal relationship potentially that they may be getting into? You know, how smart is that smart contract? <laughs> and what form does that smart, and what we're going to talk about today, smart legal contract take? There's a bit of background there, isn't there? There was the, the legal statement issued by the UK Jurisdiction Task Force 
which looked at the current legal framework from there. And mm. they were basically saying that they think that our laws are sufficiently robust and adaptable to support the use of smart legal contracts. And they say about the flexibility of our common law, as our case law, how it's evolved over the years. So we have a common law system. We've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but we've got a common law system. So our laws follow previous authorities, previous decisions by higher courts. And that system means that the law of England Wales provides an ideal platform for what they say business and innovation without the need for statutory law reforms, without the need for changing an act of parliament. So yeah. the beauty of our common law system, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And with all of that, talking about those those four principles of contract law and, and just going back to the the interplay between the blockchain being immutable, having all of its advantages, but the code behind that agreement needs to be very certain. It's worth exploring that because I think the very real issue with applying English contract law against smart contracts lies more with the issue of certainty than that of consideration, offer, and acceptance. And that's because agreements in English law, if they're either incomplete, vague, or ambiguous, can be void. Yeah. And I think that's where you get the current reticence to actually trade or contract or do business through smart contract and using blockchain because... Essentially, what you are enshrining your agreement in is code. And I'm not a coder, but I think lawyers will will have to really start understanding how code works. And by lawyers, I mean judges, really, at the end of the day, because they will need to show how a contract is perhaps ambiguous in its code, which means, therefore, it hasn't been completed or what's been breached. It's really interesting though, isn't it? Because for so long, we've had situations where contracts have been written, drafted by lawyers, and they make sense to lawyers. Well, they make sense to some lawyers, but actually there's all different legalese. Whereas now, we're having the same problem just within a digital arena. So the people with that knowledge are going to be coders, programmers, aren't they? Yeah. There are essentially, because this comes down to the tech, there, there are three main forms that are smart legal contract is a smart a smart legal contract particularly can take and I'll briefly mention those if I can. So got the first one is, is one where it's term used, it's a natural language contract with an automatic performance by the code. So yes. basically you've got a standard contract saying, you know, I will give you a coffee if you clean my house and this will be the you know this this is what will happen. The code itself doesn't actually define that agreement or those obligations between us, it's merely a tool by us to perform those. So, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure how that would work in that situation, but you know, the code would, let's say, you know, when you clean my house, as you close the door, it triggers uh, Starbucks, other, other coffee providers are available, app, which then credits you six pounds or whatever to buy coffee in central London. You know, <laughs> That's right. You could always make an app. It's like a tipping app. Thanks for cleaning my house. Here's a free coffee. Here's there a free we go. Stone. We are trademarking that, by the way. <laughs> so that's the natural language contract. So the, the, the intentions are reflected, aren't they, in yeah. that contract? Yeah. You've then got, we love this, the hybrid contract. So, I mean, again, this is kind of a middle ground, but some contractual obligations are defined in natural language and others are defined in the code of the computer program. This is what specifically the Law Commission paper on this talks about that. You know, this could be where the vast majority of the contracts written in code, but with let's say a few bits in the natural language. So that might be talking about 
which law applies the contract all the way down to mm-hmm. you know the vast majority of the contract written in natural language and just a few parts of it in code. So yeah, and then we've got the last one, which is the purely, and I think this is this is what's been causing most of the headache. Yeah, <laughs> and interest, isn't it? Is the the contracts that are recorded purely in code? Mm-hmm. So. You know, and yeah, that's it. I think that you know the Law Commission have said these clearly create the most challenges in determining if and when the contract's formed, how it can be interpreted, you know, while they're going to be rare in practice. The fact is that some people are going to start jumping on these, aren't they? And yeah, I think many lawyers, and we spoke, didn't we, in a previous podcast with Jake Moore, who's a cybersecurity expert, and he was talking about potentially smart contracts being the death of lawyers. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I think you look at interpreting code, this could actually, this, it sounds like a breathing ground for more litigation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, on, on, on a litigious element, this is going to be rife in, in, you know, in the next few years and more than industry uses it. And some real-world examples of, of where smart contracts have been used and you're looking at big players here. So, for instance, in trade finance, okay, there's a platform called We.Trade, which was launched in July 2018, and has seen very much the, the very first commercial blockchain platform developed by the big players. So you're talking you know, Deutsche Bank, Rabobank, Santander, Unicredit, etc. And what that platform enables corporates to conclude trade finance transactions with with management, tracking and payment information made available to all of those parties on a real-time basis. And the smart contracts automating the final payment based on the fulfillment of agreed conditions. But you can see with those, pardon the the very crude phrase, but if the big boys are using that kind of platform and the sums that they are used to trading with, then things need to be right. And things are going to go wrong. Someone could pop in a code which doesn't quite work, and payment is made to someone on the other side of the world who wakes up and all of a sudden, you know, they, they have millions in the bank, yeah. or perhaps even billions. So there are very real-world problems in relation to this. But people like it clearly. They put their money where their mouths are. Yeah, it's 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 ever ever increasing in terms of adoption. So. But as with anything, litigation will always be around the corner. So that's where I think lawyers will always have a job. I think what the law commission are saying is that they think the lawyers is that it, it can easily mould to embrace smart contracts. And you can see, you know, what they're saying, the court's going to need to resolve questions through the process of interpretation. Now, look, with a largely natural language contract, so the first type of contract we're talking about, that's probably fairly straightforward. Well, I say fairly straightforward. It just comes, you know, the judges will know what they're doing. They can sit there and interpret it as can barristers and lawyers. When you're looking at fully coded agreements, I think what's going to happen is just in the same way that we bring in accountants and you know, forensic accountants, we bring in cyber, you know, like I said, I mentioned Jake Moore, we bring in cyber experts to yeah. look at, let's say, analyzing metadata to look at things like that. We're going to be seeing an increase in the need and requirement for coding experts, for people who can interpret and give definition and understanding of what the code says, what it's meant to say in respect of and in relation to a contractual agreement. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of showing a real world example of how how amazing these actually can be and and, and useful, let's look at the real estate sector. So there's a very interesting company based in 
California. Silicon uh, Valley. Silicon Valley, yeah. yeah. Called Propy, I think is how you say it, or Propy. But their mission statement is to be a core product in the residential real estate transaction space and all powered by smart contracts. So what happens here is, I'll take you through it quickly, yeah. but on the platform, a vendor lists property for sale and the buyer makes an offer. If the offer is accepted, the platform automatically generates the sale and purchase agreement. So no lawyer required. Once all parties have electronically signed the agreement, the purchase agreement is encrypted and recorded on the blockchain, on their own blockchain. Oh, so they've got their own... They have their own, as as a platform, their own blockchain. When the buyer then makes payment using either fiat, which is traditional money. Government-backed currency, isn't it? Yeah, or cryptocurrency options. The platform records the payment as received on the smart contract. So this is then, this is all coded up and added to the blockchain. Actually, an if-then process, isn't it? Exactly right, yeah. The buyer then receives the officially recorded deed with the blockchain address on it. And at this point, again, it's worth a pause to consider the benefits that blockchain provides in the context of, let's imagine, yourself being the buyer or seller. Yeah. There's greater transparency, increased efficiency in having removed any middlemen or expensive middlemen like you and I, Roman. Good value, good value, <laughs> Good value. Excellent value, I'd say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> better security in terms of it being more secure than any other record-keeping systems because each new transaction is encrypted and linked to the previous transaction. Yeah. And also improve traceability in the form of an audit trail. For real estate, you can see the significant USP that blockchain has in showing that you have a very secure title to that land in terms of a record which is unchangeable. Right. Yeah. So long gone are the days where you need to store your deed to your house in a safe. I know some people might still like that, yeah. but that really is dying out. Yeah. So Propy's long-term goal is to be the official ledger of records such that the transfer of property over the platform constitutes not only the legal transfer of the property, but also the legal registration of that transfer. So I guess akin to our HM land registry, which simply stores a record of the title rather than processing the transaction via these smart contracts. Exactly. I see. The HM land registry are already looking at this. In, you know, in 2018, they started looking at it. Nothing has come out yet in terms of whether they're going to be doing that. But it's interesting because even in, you know, nothing is as... Simple as that, because what about your searches when you buy a property? What about all of that? But yeah. in terms of the contract itself, offer and acceptance, consideration, intention, doing it. uncertainty, they do. I mean, I suspect we're probably some way off, aren't we? But I mean, having said that, HM Registry, they have begun piloting qualified electronic signatures. So basically, e signatures like you can use via DocuSign and other providers rather than physical ones. Another pilot began last year. I know this quite well because. Hugh James were the first firm to use this as a part of the property transaction. Now, it is still obviously being piloted. I know Nicola Everett, our team, which is our specialist digital transformation manager, has been at the forefront of working with providers to implement this and really to drive this forward. But the uptake amongst the profession, the industry, has been quite slow. Now, that's Obviously, it's only open to very unique, specific transactions, which are low risk at this stage. But if that pilot works, then you'll be seeing qualified electronic signatures being rolled out more broadly. So I suspect the smart contract element will probably follow some years behind that. But yes. we know. I mean, Silicon Valley are 10, 15, 20 years ahead of everyone else. Aren't they? It's basically the sandbox for, yeah. for the global... Well, it was traditionally, although you've got 
Kenya, Georgia, Russia. Yeah. They're all testing pilot projects, aren't they? Yeah, they absolutely are. You know, it, it is the way that things will be, I, I expect, because of the advantages and, and the ease and the whole internet of things, so the internet of contracts. I mean, you know, why not? Let's, let's all test it and see how it goes. Yeah, and in, in an estate planning context, it's quite interesting as well in terms of, you know, could there be, and I don't know, Roman, whether you, you know, consider this could be the case, but could smart contracts be used, for instance, if someone passes away, that when someone, whoever they entrust when they're living, notifies an institution of that person's death, and then that is recorded on a blockchain, that then the code then says, well, because that person has died, their estate enters administration, and this asset, or whatever it may be, whatever the code says, is divested and bequeathed to whoever is in that code. That's a really good point. It's, just, it's effectively automating administration, yeah, isn't it? it? It could potentially do away with the need for granted probate. The risk is, and I guess this ties in with another podcast that we're doing on blockchain wills, yeah. is you look at, I mean, if you have a smart contract, if I die, then this passes to you. It's, it's automated. That's it. Yes. It's done. There's no, you take out the, the middle people who then vet it, then account for tax. So I suspect before it's implemented, you'd need robust systems to account for tax. But again, could that be part of a, a, a broader yeah. automation? But I think it's a really neat example because it shows in the future how this could properly be implemented between you know, individuals and financial institutions, because I think that this will be a regulated sector, blockchain, that the government's already looking at blockchains and creating these sandboxes here for financial institutions and people to experiment. I, I think that's that's a really interesting, which actually lends itself probably better than my coffee analogy. <laughs> if I die, then this passes to you. Well, yeah, exactly. I think you touched on it earlier in terms of, you know, currently there is a law commission report on wills and which brings into discussion paving the way for the introduction of electronic wills to better reflect the modern world so it would be interesting to see you know whether they they consider smart contract but a smart will well this is it because that this kind of comes to the broader thing of if you're affecting a disposition or a transfer on your death to someone gratuitously you can't really do that as a contract because right, because you haven't got that consideration yeah. that recipient isn't giving anything back so that's you know, that's one of the things where a smart, it certainly wouldn't constitute a smart legal contract, but it could, you could see why it would constitute a smart non-legal. You could see how someone could still create coding for that, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. But it just wouldn't, it wouldn't form a legally binding contract, and that's no. where the lawyers would get involved. And, and this is the question about the smart legal contract is, you know, the general legal position is that contracts don't have to take a particular form, mm. albeit that you, there, there are Laws of basic say that needs to be in writing and signed. So questions, you know, can a smart legal contract, if you want in code, satisfy an in-writing requirement? And the Law Commission has looked at this as well, and there's the helpful Interpretation Act 1978, to uh, throw in a bit of legalese there, but that defines writing as including all modes of representing and reproducing words in a visible form. So can contractual terms defined in code satisfy that requirement? Well, it depends on whether the code is in a form that can be read easily or tangibly and by whom. You know, can, and that goes back to this point about you know, does that create a digital elitism? Well, the fact is that we mm. lawyers have been drafting contracts for years that no one can understand. That's just time for the coders to do that. Yeah. Can a smart legal contract be signed? Well, we've already said you can sign electronically, but what constitutes 
signing, you know, and that, so there are all these questions, but and so that, you know, the law really accepts digital signatures as, as satisfying statutory requirements. Yeah. So I think the law is capable and able to accommodate these. And when it comes to interpretation, I think it's right. I think it's a case of having the right people in to inter- I think we're some way off. Yes. But I don't see a reason why we need a completely new statute to help define it. I think we have a very good common law system here. And I think that will involve, as the law involves, I mean, invariably a few steps behind. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And ultimately, you know, people will, they will walk the walk. You know, if, if institutions and, and, and finance houses and ship brokers and whoever it may be, construction companies are already using smart contracts, they are going to want a system where smart legal contracts are looked at properly, scrutinized, yeah. and, and there's a, almost a global recognition of their importance and, and their validation and definition, etc. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, ultimately that, that is the law will catch up because it will have to catch up. So if something, something does go wrong, then, I mean, we've got I mean, our standard remedies we've got in contract law, things like rectification, whether they're vitiating factors, you've mentioned those, and a mistake, misrepresentation, undue influence. So, I mean, if we look at rectification, I guess the difficulty is with a blockchain mm. is once the code's there, it's there. Yes. Potentially, there's no there's no change if it's recorded on an, an immutable distributed ledger. So because of that, whether it has built-in functionality to amend amend those terms or if you've got if someone enters into into contract by mistake or they're pressured into it, you know, things like this, they, you know, these these problems are still going to arise yeah. whether or not you have smart contracts or plain old dusty paper contracts. But again, the Law Commission, their view on this, and it's it's not a view on which they're alone, but their view on this is that they don't anticipate that this gives rise to any novel legal issues. Yeah. So they do talk about some useful recommendations, and they are, and it's worth worth looking at those. But the biggest thing they say is that actually it's probably a good idea to to avoid any uncertainties to have a natural language document alongside it, or to at least record this in some way that's clear that can be that can properly record those intentions. Now, the, the other big thing, and this is a huge thing in the, in the world of crypto and digital assets, is jurisdiction. Yeah. We've, we've spoken about it before, particularly from a tax perspective. Where you've got the asset. Well, what is the asset? Where is it? Is it linked to an underlying physical, tangible asset? Is it non-fungible? Is it, where's the, the deep donor? Where's the, you know, where's the trading platform located? And again, I think the Law Commission recognises this. And again, it recognises that actually what, what people should be thinking about is having a jurisdictional clause in the smart legal contract. Yeah. It's common sense. It's the same thing we see in normal contracts anyway. So I think there's great benefits to smart legal contracts, and I think they are the future. At the same time, I also think that the same precautions are going to need to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You'll still need to be certain in, in whatever is in that code is effective. And that's going to potentially, and, and I think it already has, create a new breed of lawyer, a new breed of advisor, and, and I think a whole new area of, of industry, which is really welcome, I think, because the benefits are there. You know, things that are faster, cheaper, why not use them, but make sure they're effective. 
a new breed of lawyer. So there we have it, folks, on that uh, on that bombshell. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that probably wraps up our talk on smart contracts. I'm uh, off to get a coffee and Kieran, you're uh, off to keep my house. <laughs> Thank <laughs> um, you very much yeah. for the raw end of the deal there. <laughs> yes, thanks, everyone. And uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. And now we come to our Ask the Experts segment, the part of the podcast where you, the listener, get to ask us a crypto or digital asset question, which we'll do our best to answer. So today's question is, how are airdrops to the wallets of deceased people taxed? Do executives have a duty to monitor the addresses of the deceased for airdrops? And if so, for how long? So then just quickly, let's remind ourselves first of what exactly an airdrop is. It's originally taken, I believe, from the literal military term for when they drop supplies or troops or so on from aircraft. In the context of digital assets, the air part of the term relates to the digital network or relevant blockchain on which users store their digital wallets and crypto tokens. And the drop part is the act of delivering, sending or dropping tokens, aka cryptocurrencies, into those wallets. This is often done by startups who are looking to promote a new digital currency and such airdrops are usually sent to those who have either expressed an interest in a new token, performed certain tasks such as raising awareness, who already hold some tokens or even as part of a raffle. Airdrops are often facilitated by means of a smart contract and that's a subject of one of our earlier podcasts so please do check that out and as you've already seen they can extend to dropping NFTs and other digital assets. The obvious issue in the context of this question, at least with airdrops, is that they can in theory be received passively. So in the case of a deceased person's estate, knowledge of the airdrop might not come to light for some time. Aside from questions, therefore, of when any token should be returned, assuming they're retained and assuming they take the form of tokens or currency, the question then is, well, how are they taxed? HM Revenue and Customs position is that it largely depends on the basis on which the airdrop was received. So if, for instance, the airdrop was provided in return for any service or other condition or as part of a trade or business involving crypto exchange or mining, for example, then it will likely first be subject to income tax. And if it's received by an employee as a form of payment, it may also be subject to national insurance. Otherwise, if it's received purely gratuitously, then it likely won't be subject to income tax. In either case, however, the underlying value of any such token or tokens would still potentially be treated as an asset of the estate. And so subject to the estate being above the inheritance tax threshold and any reliefs which might apply, such as business property relief, relief rather, they're likely to be subject to inheritance tax at 40% or 36% if, broadly speaking, they qualify for the charitable inheritance tax reliefs. Obviously, in the case of a person's living, then it wouldn't be inheritance tax, but capital gains tax that would apply. So let's look at a deceased estate and what the duties would be of an executor or, for the catch-all term, a personal representative. Well, they have a duty to take all reasonable steps to realise a deceased person's assets and estate. They're also liable to the extent that the estate property comes into their hands or should have come into their hands had they taken reasonable steps to realise it. Therefore, in the context of airdrops, the duty is to take all reasonable steps to realise the assets held in a deceased digital wallet. The very real risk with digital wallets is that more than one person might have access to a person's private key. And according to the UK Jurisdiction Task Force, I think it was, 
As ownership essentially rests with the holder or holders of the private key, it may be a race to cash in the digital wallet. That's why Aidan Briggs, a barrister at New Square Chambers, gave advice at a digital assets seminar we gave at the Gherkin in June 22, that executors should realize and sell these assets as soon as possible, given the risks of holding on to them and potentially someone else laying claim to them. Also, many online digital asset platforms such as Coinbase will freeze accounts on receipt of proof of death, and that hopefully protects against any unwarranted or unknown airdrops. And so really the best advice I'd give to executors and personal representatives faced with dealing with an estate with digital assets is to notify any platform as soon as possible, seek to freeze the account and realize or sell the assets as soon as possible. Hope that helps. Many thanks. And there we have it. That wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for listening to Lawyers on the Block. If you made it this far, then you clearly enjoyed it. So why not subscribe to make sure you hear the next episode as soon as it comes out. Remember, nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice. But if you do want to talk to a lawyer about any crypto issues that you may have, then please do get in touch at crypto at hughjames.com. Thank you.